Um, so we had a little debate recently as a staff team as to whether we should spark up the monthly notice sheet again, right? So here's one of the old notice sheets, um, and we just were debating that because, you know, things have changed, uh, a few things, you know, with, you know, weekly news emails that come out on a Thursday, and hopefully notices videos will be back soon, and they go on YouTube on every Sunday evening as well with more social media engagement, and then also I think just a, a sort of increasing cultural shift away from physical media, paper and printing and all things like that. We just wondered if there was a need for a monthly uh, notice sheet. And I'm sure in this room there would be all sorts of different opinions on that. And we're not going to get into that just now for what it's worth. We didn't actually make any final calls on it, but we did decide just to, you know, not worry about it. There was enough things that we were trying to catch up on. So we just thought, let's shelve that for a little while. Um, But I realized recently that there is, uh, well, there's a number of things actually, but there is at least one thing I want to mention that I miss about these notice sheets not being around. With these being given out week by week, um, it kept our values and our vision and our church membership covenant before us week by week. So those, uh, those documents, those uh, bits of writing, along with the church constitution, which has as part of it a statement of faith, are or at least should be, I think, um, important for us as we as a church family, both Hillview and Contour, continue along the path that God has for us. And, you know, just in case you're wondering, and before someone calls me up on it later, yes, obviously we know that these, you know, values, vision, all that constitution, they are not the most important thing. We know that uh, Jesus is our Lord, as he's revealed in the scriptures, and that is who we look to as our true authority and guide in life. But these various documents that we've pulled together as a church over different years, uh, they lay out something of how we understand the scriptures are calling us to live. And uh, here is the last notice sheet that was printed. Yes, I am a geek who keeps stuff like this. There is a a file in the filing cabinet over there with, I think, every single notice sheet that has ever been given out. So this one is from March 2020. And uh, I think we were on on the brink of a bit of a redesign of the graphics of this at the time, but we didn't quite get to that because who knew what was coming? I mean, (laughs) you look inside and, you know, we just didn't know what was coming. Apparently, there was a glorious women's festival that was supposed to be happening on the 21st of March. And there was all sorts of other things. Uh, There was Caruso Trust Family Walk and all sorts of other things that that happened in March 2020 that we had to to give up on. Um, Now, there is, as I say, part of me that misses these, not just because of the glorious, shiny paper they were printed on. Do you remember that? I love that paper. I don't know. I get fired up about stuff like that. Um, But not just because of that. I I do miss the regular reminders of seeing our our vision, our membership, covenant, and our values. So some of you will probably have never seen these, which of course speaks to the weirdness of the last 18 months. And I kind of feel sorry that, if I'm honest, that in in having to adapt to the weirdness and the, the various challenges of the last 18 months, it feels like maybe 
uh, I at least, I think probably all of us truthfully, have kind of maybe lost sight of some of these things a little bit. So just to give you a little idea, on the back of this notice sheet here, we have what's called our vision, which is eight we see statements that we, you know, we, we, we feel God is leading us towards. And then underneath that, we have six kind of promises that we make together. This kind of lays out what it means to be a member of Hillview or Contour Community Church. A member, um, we call it a membership covenant. It's promises that we make with God's help. And then on the front, here are our five church values, which are of taken from, I don't know if you clocked this when Harley was speaking last night, but on the wall, these five little pictures along with the, the Matthew 5.14 verse kind of lay out um, our five church values. And that's, of course, what we're focusing on this weekend. And as Harley mentioned last night, our values are attempting to sum up the question, who are we? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be part of Jesus' church? What does it mean to be part of the community of faith, the family of God? And then by extension, as part of that, what does it mean to be part of this particular local expression, be that Hillview or be that Kintour? And and that's what our church values are trying to capture. If vision speaks of where we're going together, what we're chasing after for Jesus' sake— If our membership covenant uh, speaks of how we relate to one another and live well together, if our statement of faith lays out some of the fundamental beliefs that we hold together, if our constitution lays out some practical guidance about how we govern life together in the church, then our values are seeking to answer the question of who are we? Or at least, better put, I think, as it's listed on the website, who we are seeking to be. Because we know we're not the finished product, right? We are reliant on God's help. We're not fully there yet, not fully formed in Christ. So, now, this is important, this idea of who are we and these values. The reason I think it's important is, you know, One of the ways you can sum up the Christian life, you can sum it up in any number of ways, but one of the ways you could sum up what it means to be a Christian is this call to become who you are. Become who you are. So, if I can just give a sense of the sort of big story of God... God has brought about in this universe, in each of us, and in all together, a certain reality... We find ourselves here in 2021 caught up in the wonderful reality of the story of God. And to try and summarize some of of what that is, the scriptures lay out for us in various ways across various books, across various times and all the rest of it, the scriptures lay out that God has always been. He is the most ultimate reality in this universe, existing in himself in perfect splendor and in perfect self-sufficiency. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, knowing perfect harmony and perfect fulfillment in himself for all time, living in perfect communion as the Godhead. And from that fullness, the wonder of the character of God, from that place, creativity burst forth. And in God's sovereign grace and loving kindness, and for the display of the glory of his grace, he bought for himself a people 
despite humanity committing from the first day until this day a great cosmic rebellion, prioritizing ourselves over the God who made us. Despite that, God in His grace pursued us. And He did that by choosing for Himself a people, the nation of Israel, from whom one day a king would come who would draw all peoples to Himself. Not just any king, but a servant king, God himself taking on flesh, one who would come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom for the sake of those who had pushed him away. And this king came to make a way for people from all nations to be brought into the family of God, even people in the nation of Scotland. God had Scotland in mind as part of his awesome story. And his people, his church, the scriptures teach, are a treasured possession, bought with the very blood of Christ, the radiant bride of King Jesus, the bridegroom, made up of saints who are alive in Jesus, you and me, in Christ and who are in Christ, no longer under sin, but under grace, no longer condemned, but forgiven, no longer in captivity, but free, no longer dead, but alive in Jesus Christ. And this people, collection of saints, the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, are living, empowered by the Spirit of God to continue the ministry and the mission of Christ here in Aberdeen and in Aberdeenshire to the glory of God the Father. That's who we are. Amen? That is who we are. Now, our goal week by week is to become who we are. Because We're not living with perfect radiance as the bride of Christ. And we want to know, well, who are we then? What does that look like in practice in a few different ways? You know, we can't sum up the whole Bible on a website or in a value statement, but we can capture a number of things together and group them together. And these five values that you see around on the walls there capture a lot of what the the scriptures underline as core to our identity. We are worshipers. We are family. We are disciples on mission, growing, growing in likeness of Christ. We are on mission, pursuing the the good news and and sharing the love of Jesus wherever he puts us, embodying that in a particular community. And the focus then for this morning is we are people who are to be grace-centered. Grace-centered. We're focusing on the good news of the grace of God. And we're saying that It is absolutely foundational to who we are and to who we should be in terms of our behavior as we go through life together. To which someone might say, we speak about the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. Someone might say, well, I see how that's important in a kind of past tense way. I see that the gospel was important in in bringing about new life in me and bringing me to that point of salvation and trust in Jesus. But when we talk about 
the Christian life, when we talk about how we should live, surely that's the, the next step, right? That's discipleship. That's this growth idea. You know, we've, we've ticked the gospel box, surely. We, we've, we've accepted the grace of Jesus. Now, is it not on to, to weightier things? We might say. But it seems from the New Testament, friends, and this is the whole point of this message, is that we should never get past never graduate from, never move on from the good news of the grace of God. In the New Testament, we have the Gospels and we have the four accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We have the book of Acts, the story of the birth and growth of the church. And then from Romans onwards, there are, uh, among other types of literature, there are 22 letters either to churches or individual believers. And, uh, and they're all, sorry, I don't know what that is. There's a weird, funny, it's not me, I promise, just for the record, in case you're hearing. It might be my base. Something's, I'm just going to unplug something and just see if that helps. Look out for the pop. It was the base. I see, I promise, I told you it wasn't me. Um... So, what was I saying? Yes, 22 letters in the New Testament, either addressed to individuals or churches, and they're all addressed like that. So, for example, to the church of God that is in Corinth, or in Ephesians, to the saints who are in Ephesus. So, what you have in the New Testament are letters to Christians, to believers, to part of the church of God. And in them, time and time and time again, we are reminded of the gospel message. And it's not just for revision purposes. So let me, let me share with you a couple of examples. I would really encourage you to follow along in your app or on your Bible. A lot of the verses aren't going to come up on the screen because it's my laptop that's on here. So to be honest with you, I'm wrestling. I saw a good tweet yesterday that said, uh, if you want people to get to engage with their Bibles more when you're preaching, stop putting the verses on the screen. I was pretty challenged by that um, because it is a little easy to be a bit passive. And I, I would encourage you generally to follow along. I think we'll probably keep the verses up there because it's helpful for some. But I, I would encourage lots of you to follow along. So Romans chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, this is Paul writing uh, to the church uh, in, in Rome. Uh, so let's, it says, to all, you know, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. So he's writing to people who are in Christ. And then he says this in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that, I'm, that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to what? I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So there, brothers and sisters, church in Rome, I want to come to you. Why? Because I want to preach the gospel to you, church. Uh, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Again, written to the church in Corinth, as we just heard a moment ago. And then at the start of chapter 15, it says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. I want to remind you, church, 
of what the gospel is, which you, past tense, received. Yes, that is an important thing. We all should be able to tell some sort of story about how the gospel impacted us at one moment or over the course of, could be months or years, that changed us. The gospel um, which you received, in which you stand, the gospel is to affect us now, today, and it says, by which you are being saved. Being saved. It's an ongoing process. There is a future reality that the gospel should uh, impact us as we go through life. And we see this again, just time and again, in letters to churches or Christians, laying out the good news of God's grace. Friends, this is not just basic stuff that you move on from. Christians need to be reminded of the amazing news of the grace of God. So before we look at why that is, I just want to look at three amazing passages that help us just to ponder for a moment the amazing grace of God. Now, this is, of course, not all that you could say about the gospel, about the good news of the grace of God. You'll you'll pick up, by the way, I, I am using the gospel and the grace of God, somewhat interchangeably. The, the Bible does that itself at points. Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, speaks about how his whole life is about testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. So you can hold these together. And I just want us to ponder the gospel together. Obviously, not all there is to say, but three amazing passages. So we've just read the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look from verses 3 to 5. This is one of the clearest places, probably the clearest place in the New Testament, where the gospel is plainly laid out for us. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And and on it goes there. Now we see here, friends, it's all about Jesus. We can be so quick to jump to, what does this mean for me? But here, what what is the little phrase is underlined twice in those couple of verses? According to the scriptures, Paul is just wanting us to focus. What's the gospel? The gospel is a certain amount of truth about who Christ is and what has happened to him. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. At the heart of the gospel is the display of the wondrous person and work of Jesus Christ. But it does say, Christ died for our sins. So what does that mean? This is good news for us. I mean, it is just objective good news about who Jesus is, but it is good for us. And we're just going to look at another couple of passages to help make sense of this idea. What does it mean for Jesus to die for our sins? I mean, it's just one of those little phrases, right? That if you've been around church any amount of time, it just kind of rolls off your tongue. But what does that mean? Well, let's look at two awesome passages. I don't know whether you're going to be able to see this or not. I kind of hope so. Uh, uh, (laughs) Maybe not. Depends on your eyesight. Some may be able to see it, some not. Um, If anyone can see Romans 3, 21 to 26, would you, in a super loud voice, read it out for the rest of the room?
Thanks so much, Heidi. That word, um, again, we've talked about this in the past, different Bible translations make certain judgment calls on how they should translate various words and concepts. The ESV have chosen to keep this word propitiation because they think it's worth us learning what that means. The NIV uses the word atoning sacrifice. Um, To propitiate something means to to bear it yourself so as to remove it from someone else. So, you know, Jesus is the the wrath-bearing sacrifice. That's why the NIV talks about an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Thank you so much. Uh, Could someone else, super loud, read out Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10? Thank you, Nigel. Now, as we know, Romans and Ephesians were specific letters written to specific contexts and things like that, but we're just, we're just dipping into them because there is so much that we can glean from these passages as we try and understand what does it mean, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, that Jesus died for our sins. That's what we're trying to figure out. And there are a number of awesome things here, and I'm just going to rattle through them. We're not going to spend a long, you could spend months on these passages, but I just want to share a few things, and it's just going to highlight, oh, you can't see it so well. It's going to highlight various parts as I'm speaking about this, different things that we see in these verses. These verses speak of, among other things, the righteousness and the glory and the justice of God, that, that God is supreme, that he's different that he's perfect in his character. These verses make clear that everyone has sinned, that that everyone is not just in in need of a little touch-up or a little moral improvement, but the Scriptures teach that actually in our sins, we are spiritually dead, not just needing a bit of help, but dead. Now, that should be the end of the story. But this is the good news of the grace of God. We can be justified. That is to say that we can be made righteous. We can be as innocent before God. In good standing with God. Declared that way because of what God has done. We see that this is the work of a merciful God. Because he loves us, even though we reject his ways. It's not because of us. It's not because of anything good that we have done. This comes to us, next point, through faith in Jesus as we trust in him. And just like Harley flagged last night, I just want to to flag as well. I don't know in this room. Who knows where we're all at? Maybe someone here still needs to just accept the wonderful truth that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, was buried, was raised. And that's what, that's what happens. We just trust in Jesus. We just trust in Jesus. And then it can, how can this happen? I mean, how can this be? This cosmic offense, more horrific than any other evil that you could conceive of in this world. How can it be that God can just bring this about? Well, it can happen because Jesus on the cross became our propitiation, our sacrifice of atonement. He took, he absorbed in himself the punishment that should have been for us. And what happens, friends, is that as we trust in Jesus, God brings us from death to life. We know new life in Christ. My old pastor, Matthew Henderson, used to say it like this, when I became a Christian, Matthew Henderson died. 
And who was born that day was Matthew Henderson in Christ Jesus. That's who I am now. Matthew Henderson's gone. I'm Matthew Henderson in Christ. It's a helpful way for us just to think about. Um, we, we, the old person, the old is gone. The, the new has come. We know new life in Christ. Why? There's a purpose for us to do good works now and into eternity. This is so important. We're going to see this later. The fruit, the evidence of new life in Jesus. And here's the thing, just to, to finish off in this little bit here, is just to underline it's free. It's grace. You know, some of you will have heard the, the, the wee definition of grace, undeserved, unmerited, undeserved. What am I saying? Undeserved merit, undeserved favor, undeserved kindness from God. It's free. Now, again, we could have picked many other passages which are given a slightly different emphasis, but I just pray that we can again see how wonderful this is. And that we could just pray even now and that we would have the inclination day by day to pray, God, open our eyes more and more to see the wonders of your grace, to see the wonders of the story of God and how little old me is able to be included in your purposes across all eternity. Friend, you are loved by God by the creator of this world. You are wanted by God. He has made a way in Christ for us to know him, to embrace him, to enjoy him for all eternity. This is amazing. And it should continually astound us, amaze us, and energize us how we need to hear the gospel every day to remind ourselves of the wonderful love and grace of God. And when we put the good news of the grace of God at the very center of our lives, it changes us in a number of ways. It changes how we live and operate. And I just want to spend the rest of our time just dashing through different ways that this impacts us. The first thing is this. I promise I'm going to move fast. It changes how we deal with failure. This is perhaps something that we focus on a lot. Although, I think, if I'm honest, in the evangelical church, we maybe don't allow the truth of God's grace to seep deep down into our souls. Some of us here maybe feel present tense or at least can look back to a time where they have felt that, you know, I've blown it again. I've messed up again and guilt and shame can creep in, and we can find ourselves in cycle of despair where we stumble, and we go, God, I'm sorry, I've blown it again. And we, and we wrestle with that for a little while, and we're restored, and we stumble again, and we just, and in some ways, you can look over years of the Christian life and just feel it can just be this, this continual wrestle of, you know, and I think we, we, we need God's help to allow the truth of his love to seep deep into our souls. I, I mentioned to you a number of weeks ago that the little phrase that captures up my sabbatical, which to be honest, some of this was not easy, but I, I said it felt to me like God was wrestling me into submission in his love. <laughs> that it didn't feel like lounging by the oasis. It felt like God having to shake me and Press down on me in his love, in his love. 
And, and I, praise God, I, I, do, I do feel that I was just deeply ministered to by the Holy Spirit in that. But we, we have to remind ourselves every day, do we not, that our acceptability to God is not at all based on us. It's based on Jesus Christ and His finished, complete, perfect, sufficient work on the cross. Jesus, brother, sister, died for all your sin, past, present, future, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to hear that. We need to remind ourselves that he's conquered all of our sin and and to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit to live in that freedom, to become who we are. We're free, we're alive, we need to live in that. Do we not see this in the life of Jesus over and over again? The woman caught in adultery, the prodigal son, the thief on the cross. We deal with our failures differently when we embrace the gospel. If you're caught in that cycle of endless shame struggle, ask someone to pray for you this weekend. Come forward for prayer sometime. Pray for freedom in that. Now, most of us understand this because we, we know we all make mistakes, but the next, next one is often harder to grasp, especially if you live a fairly nice kind of moral life, which many of you do. I know you. You're all nice people. Most of you, anyway. Um, when we live grace-centered lives, it changes how we deal with success. I'm going to go to Philippians chapter 3. We'd invite you to kind of tap over there or turn over there. Um, There is zero room for pride when we put the gospel at the center of our lives. So Philippians 3 from the second part of verse 4. If anyone else thinks, Paul writes, that he has reason for confidence in the flesh to feel good about himself in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's kind of lifting, listing off his CV here of what it means to be an impressive religious person. Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I count every, oh sorry, but whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. When we truly understand the the glory of God, the, the, the righteousness of God, who God is in all his perfect purity, we realize that even our best works are, if they're achieved in our own strength, just rubbish as Paul puts them there. Isaiah 64, 5, many of you will know this verse, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, the prophet says there. When we're doing well in life, when we're managing not to fall out with others, managing not to be selfish, managing to live well as a Christian at school or at work, managing to read our Bible and pray every day, what what can begin to happen? A righteousness of our own can begin to creep in. We can begin to feel pretty good about ourselves. And in that moment, we need to embrace 
the gospel. God, help me find, as Paul puts it, not a righteousness in myself, which is rubbish, but the righteousness I have in you. It changes how we think about living well this coming week. Thirdly, living as grace-centered people gives us a heart desire to welcome others. If we love and embrace the gospel, we will never turn our nose up at other people. To the extent that we embrace what God has done for us in welcoming us, we will never turn others away, but we will gladly welcome them. Think of Jesus with Zacchaeus, for example. This guy who had lived horrendously, cheated people, been underhand, and, and uh, Jesus just comes along and says, hey, Zacchaeus, welcome to fellowship with me. Let's go for dinner. Before, by the way, he had made any step towards repentance and making things right. We understand, friends, when we understand that God welcomed us while we were still sinners, as we do that, we have to welcome others, no matter their background, personality, shape, smell, behavioral tendencies, struggles, needs, will we, as we embrace, wow, if God welcomed me in all my mess and need, will we welcome others? We need the gospel to help us. Living as grace-centered people compels us to extend forgiveness to others. Could you please turn to Matthew chapter 18? Now, this is big, right? Because absolutely every one of us would know that it's a certainty in life that we will wrong others and others will wrong us. I mean, that's just definitely going to happen. Probably today, you're going to upset someone uh, or you're going to be upset by someone. And um, we, when we understand the gospel, it changes everything. Matthew 18 from verse 21 uh, Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77, i.e. stop counting. Never, stop, just keep going. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And I'm just looking at the clock, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to read this whole passage, but many of you will know it. There was a servant who owed a king in today's money what would have been the equivalent of millions of pounds, and he begged for the debt to be forgiven from the king, and the king in his grace and kindness forgave him of the debt and sent him out to live in that freedom and that joy. And that servant went out from that room and came across someone who in today's money owed him a few pounds. And it said he grabbed that person by the neck and demanded that the debt would be settled. And when, of course, the king heard about this, he called this servant back in and made it clear that that is not how you live. When you've been forgiven much, you forgive others of much. Millions of pounds versus a few pounds. The message could not be clearer, but we miss it every day. I have to say, I was wary of speaking in these universal terms, but is there a bigger problem for the church of Jesus Christ than unforgiveness? 
There probably is. Forget that. It is a big problem for the church of Jesus Christ that we withhold forgiveness for our bro- from our brothers and sisters in Christ. How dare they do that to me? How dare they wrong me like that? I'm going to make them pay in some way or another, even if it's just in the subtle way that I cut them off, or if it's in a more obvious way, if it's just giving someone the cold shoulder, or if it's tearing them down with your words or whatever it looks like. Friends, if we understand the gospel, we cannot react like that. How can we hold a grudge against someone, our brother or our sister in Christ, when we realize that God has not held a grudge against us? We see this in the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus taught us to pray daily, because it says to pray for your daily bread. So to, to pray daily, forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive those who sin against us. It's assumed. This is what it means to know the grace of God. It flows out from us. Think of your relationships. Do you tend to push people away when they wrong you? Do you tend to let people know that you're not happy with them? Do you tend to highlight other people's flaws and issues? Or are you quick to forgive? As we embrace the gospel more and more, it compels us to relate to others with grace and forgiveness to those in the family and the household of God. It changes how we deal with secondary issues. We're, not, we're just going to skip over this one. We've not got time for it. But there's an incredible passage in, in Titus chapter 3, where for uh, four verses, he just again lays out what the gospel is and then says, therefore, in light of the good news, do not get caught up in foolish controversies, in genealogies, in matters of the law. I know we know that doesn't mean don't disregard the whole law because, of course, the scriptures are, you know, in Christ, he is fulfilling the law and that's what the New Testament is, is all about. But he's saying just there are, there are things that you just need to let go. And then I have to tell you just briefly, very strong words for those who don't do that. Very strong words for those who get caught up in, in, in less important issues, of course, in the scriptures, there are primary issues that we all need to call one another to believe. And if someone falls away from believing certain truths of what's in the Bible, we should call them back to the truth. But there are countless issues in our church where we can have different views. And we do have different views in this church. And the gospel changes how we deal with that. And, and it says, you know what, if you're a divisive person, If you're a divisive person, you know, warn them once and after that, have nothing more to do with them. There's serious consequences in the New Testament for those who are endlessly divisive. And it's again, it's connected to our embrace of what Jesus has done for us. If, if, If Jesus has welcomed me into his family with all my mess and struggle, how can I act like this little person over here with their particular struggle is not welcome in the family of God just because they believe something different about a less important issue than me? When we know we're welcomed, it changes how we deal with secondary issues. Penultimately, finally, sorry, penultimately, uh, living as grace-centered people changes how we view ministry and obedience. You see, preachers can't just resist saying finally and saying it like four times before they come to the end of their, their sermon. 
Um, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Uh, where are we? Here we go. 1 John 2. Listen to the order here. My little children. I love it when the, 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 the writers of the letters speak to us like that. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here's the gospel again, right? He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also for, also for the sins of the whole world. And then, and then listen to the application of that. By this, we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, whoever says they love the gospel, you might say, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth of God is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. You see, even that language, what is ministry and obedience? It's the love of God, the gospel perfected. The love of God going public. It's very, very precious. Pursuing good works for God is, is a response to God's love, not a condition of God's love. And if we get that wrong, we'll respond in one of either two ways. We'll either respond, some of you will respond in pride, and some of you will respond in despair. When we get that wrong, our good actions are in response to God's love because of God's grace. And then finally, and then we are done now, I promise, this leads us to worship. As we consider the wonders of the gospel, the only appropriate response is worship and thankfulness and adoration. Think of Luke chapter 7, the woman who anoints Jesus' feet, and, she, and Jesus says, she loves much. She worships much. She makes much of me. Why? Because she has been forgiven much. She knows the gospel. She knows who I am. And that's why she responds like this. And time and time again in the gospels, Jesus connects with people, shares his grace and his love with them, and they respond in worship and adoration. I mentioned that uh, the, the, the gospel is shared in all the letters of the, the New Testament. In Romans 1 to 11, it's really stark. It just lays out the amazing truth of who God is and the the good news of Jesus. And Paul gets to the end of Romans 11 before it goes into a a different section from Romans 12 onwards. It's much more about what does this look like in life. And, And at the end of chapter after chapter of laying out the good news of Jesus before he shifts into a different gear in chapter 12, he just spills out with this wonderful expression of praise, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen, Paul writes. And then he goes on for four more chapters, 12 to 16. That's five more chapters, isn't it? Hillview and Kintour Community Church, this is who we are. We are sinners saved by grace. But we can't, we can tend to forget that, can't we? The most important things in our life can just fall to the back of our minds, right? Rarely considered. The the floor that I'm standing on, the foundations of our house, the brakes in our car, the beat of our heart, the right mix of oxygen in the air, the 
deep bonds of family and deep friendship. These are, these are realities that are so important to us, but they just often fall to the back of our minds or we forget them altogether. And what happens? The mundane, hour-by-hour hour needs of life press in. And we can do that with the gospel, can't we? These amazing truths. May we never forget. May we never move on never graduate, never get over the wonder of the gospel to move on to more pressing things. But instead, let's become who we are. Let's be grace-centered. Let's allow the love and the good news of Jesus to flow through everything we are and everything we do. Let's pray. Maybe just in the quiet, just take a look at those, uh, those seven realities up there. And just pick one that you feel is a struggle for you just now. And just ask God to help you in that. Holy Spirit, we name to you our need. We confess to you that the wonderful truth of the good news of Jesus Christ has not seeped as deeply into our very essence and, and being as, as it should have, as it could. Well, we don't want to hear condemnation. We want to hear invitation today. So we're just praying, God, that in your grace, you would just open our eyes again to accept and to live in and to wonder at the reality of who you are, this great story of God that you've called us into. And I'm just praying, Lord God, that you would help all of us to be changed by the gospel, to be grace-centered in how we live. We pray these things, asking for your help, for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen.